Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. be reading the first seven verses, and then we'll pray together, and we'll study God's Word. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God when he says this, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus." who gave himself as a ransom for all, which, he, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gathering Thank you for the opportunity to sing your praises and to be led in worship. Thank you for the Lord's Supper, this reminder, this tangible reminder of what you have done to save your people by the body and blood of Christ. At great cost to yourself, we can now come into your presence as sons and daughters. What grace, what grace. And now as we turn our attention even more specifically in worship to the study of your word, Lord, Teach us, confront us, convict us, comfort us, give us guidance and direction and allow us to see the beauty of your revealed word and and how it gives instruction for our life, but also how it reminds us of our hope in Christ. Bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Timothy. First, it was Reformation Sunday, and then we had our retreat just last week, and Jeff was here preaching while I was out at the retreat. And since we've been away from 1 Timothy for the last two weeks, I want to just take a moment for us to kind of remember the context of the letter. This is a letter being written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his child in the faith. Timothy is the pastor for the church in Ephesus, and the reason for the writing of this letter has to do with the fact that things in the church at Ephesus are not as they should be. Specifically, there are false teachers in the church. They have created a mess of things, and Timothy is tasked with putting into order God's household. That's the language that the Apostle Paul has used in the first chapter. And, and Paul has much to say about the organizing of ministries and the, the focus of ministries, but he chooses to begin his instruction 
in something of an unexpected place. With all the problems going on in this church, with all the things, with all the issues, with all the, the confusion, Paul says that the thing that we should do first is to pray And you would think with the false teachers in the mix that maybe the most important thing on Paul's mind would be, let's get doctrine right. And he will get to doctrine. He's already addressed some of that doctrine, but that's not where he starts. You might think with the culture around the church being what it was, with Rome uh, trying to throw Christians into the arena, you might think that the topic of persecution or martyrdom would be at the top of Paul's list, but it's not. There are a dozen other things that Paul could address first, but he says, first of all, prayer needs to be a priority for you. I think about the the quote that's often given from Martin Luther. You may know this about Luther. he's, He's famous for commenting that I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Is that the way we think? When we get our to-do list out, when we begin to think of all the things that are important, all the things that are pressing on our lives, that with all of this happening, I should retreat. I should spend time focused on prayer because prayer is the priority for me. That's just not the way most of us think. It's not the way I tend to think. But it's the way Paul thinks and it's the way Paul is instructing us to think as well. And we can even apply this directly to our own current context. I mean, there's so much going on in our world. We live in days of of conflict and strife. We live in days marked by protest and political division and cultural upheaval. And the debates are loud. They're not quiet. The politics are volatile. They're not peaceful or pleasant. War dominates our headlines. And the church faces all kinds of pressures. Pressures to capitulate to a new secular orthodoxy. Pressures to abandon our biblical principles, to change our message, to adjust our morals. And with all of this swirling around, we might have a certain list of priorities. And Paul says, if you don't have prayer at the top of that list, you need to rethink your list. Obviously, we should pray. As Christians, we are taught to pray. The Lord instructs us to pray. He gives us a clear understanding of how we are to pray. He even tells us why we are to pray. We pray to a a heavenly father who's a good father, who desires to give good gifts to his children. All of these things are true. And so obviously, as Christians, we should pray. We should pray as individuals. We should pray as families. We should pray together in difficult times. And when God gives us something to celebrate, we should celebrate with thanksgiving. But the prayer that Paul has in mind here, not only is it to be the priority for us, but this is, this is not just talking about your individual prayer closet. This is talking about our gathering as a church. The context here in this passage is prayer that takes priority as the church is gathered together. You know, that 9 a.m. prayer meeting that we've been doing, it's really important. So as we consider what the Apostle Paul says as far as instruction for the church, addressing all the issues that are going on, we have to understand the priority of prayer. He even helps us to understand the scope of our prayers. He he reminds us of the hope of our prayers, and then he gives us the content of our prayers, or at least something of the content of our prayers. So let's let's think about these things, the priority of our prayer. Go back to verse 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge... 
that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now by using that phrase, first of all, Paul is telling Timothy and he's reminding us that prayer should be a first order priority for the people of God. That's where that idea comes from, in that phrase right there. And this may be a bit of a shock to us because, yes, we'll all agree at some level that, yeah, prayer is important, but at the top of the list, like number one, really, is that where prayer goes? I mean, if you think about the things that you consider to be priorities for the ministry of the church, what might they be? Surely evangelism has got to be a priority, right? I mean, of course it is. I mean, Jesus gives us a commission. He says, you are to go into all of the nations, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey. So disciple-making is part of the great commission, not just a, a secondary commission. It's the great commission. It's the important commission. This is what we're called to do. And the making of disciples is necessitating our evangelism, our proclamation of the gospel. But Paul doesn't put evangelism at the top of the list. Some of you, maybe not right now, but some of you might say, well, preaching is to be the most important thing. I believe that preaching is a very important thing. The church is commanded to preach. And in preaching, we are proclaiming the truth of God's word. We are proclaiming the truth of the gospel, both to the church for the purpose of edification and then to those who come who are not part of the church for the purpose of evangelization. Prayer is important incredibly important, but it's not at the top of Paul's list. Maybe you would say something else like, well, experience is the most important thing. Having an experience with God. We, we hear that language a lot. We want to have an experience with God. I mean, churches are advertising, come to us and you'll have an experience with God. Is experience the top of your priority list? I mean, the scriptures actually teach on this. Experience plays some role but when we seek an individual experience, the Apostle Paul says, that's for self-edification. You should seek something that is edifying the whole body. That's 1 Corinthians 14.4 if you want to go look at it. Experience is not at the top of the list. What is the most important thing in your mind? Why are you here? Why are you at Cornerstone? Is it because of our doctrinal stance? Well, that's an important piece. Is it because of home groups? You, just, you prioritize home groups, right? That's the most important thing to you. Fellowship with other people, friendships, those kind of things. All of this is important, and all of this is part of the life of the church. But it's, it's not what Paul places as the priority for the church. Paul is exhorting us here. First of all, exhorting us and encouraging us to make prayer a priority in our lives together. And he even gives us an understanding of what our prayers should consist of. He gives us four terms here. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And the way that our brains work, or at least the way my brain works, is when I see four different terms, I'm thinking, well, that means four different types of prayer. And that's not exactly the way we should read this. This is something of a summary of the way we are to pray. The words do mean something, but they give us a summary understanding of what our prayer should consist of. Number one, supplication. Supplication refers to requests that are made for specific needs. Whatever that need might be. When we are making needs known to God and asking God to meet our needs for uh, healing or for a new job or whatever the case might be, that, that falls into that category of supplication. 
prayers, the way that the, the term is used here, it's simply, it, it's kind of a high um, technical term for bringing our requests to God, bringing our needs before God. To intercede is this idea of us making appeals to God on behalf of others. We have a brother or a sister that's sick in the hospital and we are praying for them. We have a brother or a sister who's sharing the gospel with a friend or a neighbor and we're praying for them. We're interceding on their behalf. And then Thanksgivings, I mean, hopefully we don't need too much explanation. We are thanking God. We're showing gratitude to God for what he's done. So when you put all these things together, we have a summary of what it should look like when we pray. In prayer, we are making our urgent request to God the Father. We are asking him to meet the needs of his people, and we are humbly thanking him for hearing and answering our prayers as a loving and benevolent Father. In prayer, we are literally crying out to God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. There should be a sense of of, of helplessness that motivates our prayers. A sense of desperation, a sense of need. God, we need this and we are powerless to do it. Would you make this a reality for us? Prayer is a verbal acknowledgement of our helplessness. It is a corporate confession that our only hope is to lay our requests at the feet of our loving Father. And when we pray, that's what we're doing. We are confessing our inability and crying out to God to meet our needs. I like this quote by Alistair Begg. He says, Prayer is an acknowledgement not, uh, that our need of God's help is not partial, but total. And, and I wonder if, if we thought about where we place prayer on the list of our priorities, how much we actually believe that statement. We have a tendency to think, no, I've got this. I can accomplish this. I've got, uh, these things are well within my power. Well, prayer is kind of the opposite of that. Prayer is us asking God to do for us what we know we can't do for ourselves. It's casting ourselves upon his mercy. And the first thing that Paul tells us to do here as a church is that we should make prayer our priority. But there's more. Look what he says next. He tells us something about the scope of our prayers. And and this comes out in verses 1 and 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul tells us that we we should be praying for all people. And guess what that word all means? It just means all. And it's kind of a theme of this section. I mean, if you, if you kind of scan the text, I'm going to point some things out, but there's at least five, maybe six, some would say seven different references to all. In verse 1, Paul instructs us to pray for all men or all peoples. In verse 2, we are to pray for all who are in high positions. In verses 3 and 4, we read that God our Savior desires all men to be saved. In verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And then in verse 7, Paul says that he is a preacher and a teacher of the Gentiles. And the implication is that he's a a preacher and a teacher to all of the Gentiles. So five times at least in this passage, we see Paul directing us not to pray for a certain few people, but all. The point Paul is making is that the scope of our prayers as a church 
are at least not limited to just our local body of believers, but to everyone within our community, within our sphere of influence. All men and women need prayer. Why? Because all men and women need the gospel. In praying for the, and, and the gospel is the context of this. In praying for those around us, we are casting our net as wide as we possibly can. It is not wrong for us to pray for the needs of our own church family. It's not wrong for us to pray for healing or for some upcoming doctor's appointment or for a job opportunity. But our prayer should also be concerned for the lost. For those who are outside of the fellowship. For those who are outside the four walls of our building. The urgency of our prayers should be seasoned with the needs of the world around us. Our cries to God for peace, for healing, for blessing, for salvation should be broader than we think, not more narrow. And there is no doubt that the context here, that the kind of prayers that we should be praying are prayers that have an evangelistic zeal, a gospel zeal. We should desire the Lord to bring salvation to our community. We should seek the Lord's blessing for gospel peace so that all within the city will enjoy it. I don't know how this is hitting you, but I can just tell you, I've been studying this passage all week, and it has been a source of consistent correction and rebuke for me. I have a, I have a structured pattern of prayer. I'll pray for my needs, my family's needs, and the church needs, and then any other little thing that has come in over the week from our prayer meeting, that's where my prayers go. And that tends to be the scope. It's in my mind how I pray. I pray on those levels. And maybe you do something similar. And when asked, I'm very happy to pray for your family member or whatever's going on in your life. I don't have any problems with that. If, if there's a lost person you're sharing the gospel with, I will stop and pray then. Generally, when someone comes up and asks me to pray, I'll say yes. And just so I'm not a liar, as soon as they walk away, I will try to say a prayer in my heart for that need before I write it down and that kind of thing. But what Paul's telling me here is that the scope of my prayers needs to be larger than it generally is. And maybe you feel a little bit of that same correction and rebuke this morning. When is the last time you prayed for those in governing authority over you? We're specifically commanded to pray that here for them. We just had a, a round of elections. New, new people in, on the city council or new mayors or new officials, new, new people on the school board. When's the last time you focused to pray for them? Do you regularly pray for the peace of Christ to reign in the hearts of those outside of our church family? Do you pray for the leaders within our community? Do you pray with the church for those ends? This is the, the context of what we're seeing here. Do you make it a point to pray for revival? You pray for the people in your job, the neighbors that you have. Do we consistently pray for the people of Wiley and Levon and Josephine and Murphy and Garland and Saxe and all these other cities that we live in? This is where God has placed us. And we are being commanded specifically to pray for them. And this type of broad concern 
for those outside of the fellowship is not just something that we see in the New Testament. It's something we see in the Old Testament as well. When Israel was exiled to Babylon, God gave them instruction. This is from Jeremiah 29, 7. This might be familiar to some of you. He tells them, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. So the people of God are no longer in Jerusalem. They're no longer able to go to the temple and worship God, but God gives them instruction. They're now in a foreign land, in a land that worships foreign gods, and God tells them through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. These are pagan people. And God says, pray for them, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So this is not a new concept that Paul is bringing to mind here. This is an Old Testament concept, but it's something that we need to, we need to take seriously. There should be a priority placed upon our prayers, and the scope of our prayers should probably broaden out beyond the way we normally pray. Now remember, remember, let's go back and think about the letter itself. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus. Ephesus is filled with a, a bunch of great people, but there are some false teachers in there. And, and it seems as though it would be right to infer that one of the things that they have corrupted about the church is that they're trying to make the prayers of the church very small. They don't want all of these other people to get saved. They just, they just want to pray for these few people here. And Paul is saying, no, you know, you've got that wrong. These false teachers have this very wrong. We are to pray for all people. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions of authority. Paul says we need to expand the scope of our prayers, not limit them. That's what he's telling us to do here. So he talks, talks about the priority of prayer and the scope of our prayers. But notice also in, in verse 2 that Paul gives instructions letting us know that the church is to pray and that prayer should be aimed at serving a gospel purpose. So let's look at the hope of our prayer. He says that we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the, the desire to pray for all is rooted in God's desire that all be saved. There's a gospel connection in our prayers. That's that ev evangelistic hope that should motivate our prayers. Paul wants our prayers to support our evangelistic mission to the world. In other words, we're not just to pray that people will get along. We're not just to be praying simply that people would be happy and healthy and wealthy. We are praying that they will come to a knowledge of the truth. We are to pray in such a way that the, the change that would result would promote the good of all. We are praying for the comfort and peace of Christ in all. We are praying with a desire for the salvation of all through faith in Christ. There is a logical connection between the peaceful and quiet life that we are striving for, asking for, and the salvation of those within our communities. In other words, this is not simply a call for us to pray that people will get along. The concern is, is to pray for the salvation of the lost. This is a prayer for gospel revival. And I don't know about you, um, growing up in church, that was a constant issue. 
Maybe it was just that one localized church, but we were constantly praying for the gospel and the Spirit of God to so get a hold of us as a people that we would do the work of ministry and see revival spread. This is the heart of what Paul's praying here. The Net Bible. I was just having a conversation with someone about the Net Bible, the New English translation. If you're not familiar with it, I'd love to talk about it, or maybe Hampton could tell you a little more about it. But the Net Bible translates this verse in such a way that it helps us to see, I think, more clearly what the original text is saying. It says this, Such prayer for all is good and welcomed before God our Savior, since He wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, our prayer is good because it connects with the heart of God for the lost. That's the point that Paul wants us to embrace. It pleases God when we pray the kind of prayers that show our evangelistic concerns for the world because that is the desire of God himself. Now this means that our prayers are not limited to the people we like It means that our prayers are not limited to those who look like us or share our political beliefs or our ethnic identity or our nationality. There is no room for elitism in this prayer. There's no room for classism in this prayer. There's no room for racism in this prayer. The scope of our prayer for the lost extends to all peoples, or I'll just use the common language of the New Testament, specifically at Revelation, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples. That's the concept. That's the idea. That is God's desire. That is the heart of God, that all peoples will come to a knowledge of the truth. John Calvin writes of this phrase, this idea. He says, the apostle's meaning here is simply that no nation of the earth and no rank of society is excluded from salvation since God wills to offer the gospel to all without exception. God's desire, God's will of desire is that all people, all peoples will come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. And that term, all peoples, is consistent with the universal gospel mission to the world and is most likely, again, contradicting what the false teachers were doing in Ephesus. They don't want the gospel to affect every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. They just want to keep it localized. And Paul is saying, that's not the gospel. That's not the mission. That's not the heart of God. And and again, this desire of God is made clear, not just here, but throughout Scripture. Think about some, some of these verses. This is Isaiah chapter 45. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He could have just said, just... Israel, if you'll just turn to me and be saved, I'll be happy. But he doesn't. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. In Ezekiel 18, 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure, God says, in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live or you can just look at the new testament second peter chapter 3 verse 9 the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance 
Do we have a picture in our minds of the heart of God with regard to the nations, to his creation, to his, his plan for the, the drawing in of all peoples to himself? From the Old Testament promises he made to Abraham and then he re-upped those promises in New Covenant promises to the New Testament. We see that picture of God's desire for all of the nations to hear the truth of Christ and come. And at the same time, we know that within the eternal purpose of God, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, we know this, that God chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And, and you'll notice I stressed the word us there because it's, it's, it's not the word all, it's the word us. We know these two things are true. We can't fully map out the mind of God with regard to these things. But both of these truths are found in Scripture, boldly proclaimed. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, while at the same time reminding us things like, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In our minds, these two concepts exist in tension. Or maybe it's just my mind. These two things, the idea of God's universal offer of the gospel and his specific purpose in election, those things stand in tension in our minds, but not in the scriptures. These things remain a mystery to us. How can God's sovereign purpose in salvation stand alongside his love for the world and desire for all men to repent? This kind of remains a mystery to us. It's hidden in the eternal decrees of God. But one thing is abundantly clear. Both of these things exist without contradiction in Scripture. Therefore, both of these things exist without contradiction in the divine mind of our Creator. And yes, there are lots of theological explanations for this. And you can read those things, and you probably should read those things. But the scriptures make clear that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true, whether we work out the mechanism of action or not. The confusion that we feel should also not keep us from our task of praying for the lost and preaching the gospel indiscriminately to all. That's our calling. That's what we do. We preach the gospel to all. We pray for all to repent of sin and embrace, embrace the truth of Christ, all the while trusting this, that God's purpose of redemption will stand. We should place a priority upon prayer for all with, with the understanding that prayer does serve the purpose of the gospel. But don't mistake, don't assume that by this language of all that that we should embrace some form of universalism. That's a danger here. Don't embrace a form of universalism. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes clear that this is not about universalism. Salvation comes to those who embrace the knowledge of the truth, and it's in verse 5 that he begins to clarify what the truth is. So let's look at verse 5. Let's look at the content of our prayer. Paul wants us to pray for people to embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. He tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we pray with a purpose. That purpose is for men and women to embrace the truth of Jesus Christ as the one and only mediator between God and men. And this is an incredibly important verse. So let's take a little bit of time. I know I know we're running a little bit toward our time when we normally dismiss, but there's three things that we need to see in this one verse that are incredibly important and they, they help us to understand the gospel. So first, Paul reminds us that there is only one God. Paul is saying that God is not simply one of the many gods that exist within the pantheon of divine choices. The Bible is quite clear that there is no other God. There is nothing in all of creation that is like God. He is God alone. He is the creator and sustainer of life. He's the judge of all the earth, the sovereign over all, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He alone is God and there is none like him. Over and over we see these truths. The gospel statement by Paul in this verse is built upon the foundation of monotheism. There is one God and Yahweh is His name. He is our creator. To Him we owe our being and existence. To Him we owe our worship and devotion. To Him we must answer. For He stands as the sovereign and holy judge of all the earth who will do what is right. And this is where our problem comes in. We understand that God is one. We understand that He alone is the one to whom we answer. And now we have to understand something about ourselves. The one true God to whom we must give an account is a holy God, and we are not holy. We are sinners who have all rebelled against God and His Word. All of mankind has turned aside from worshiping Him. All of mankind has rejected His goodness and truth. The Bible says that like sheep, we've all gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know these truths. The reason that we are to pray for all men to be saved is welded to the fact that all men have sinned and they are in need of salvation. Now, the first thing he tells us is there is one God, but the second thing Paul tells us is that there is one mediator between God and men, only one, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. And when's the last time you used the word mediator? I mean, unless you're Jeremy Dice, who's not here with us today, we probably don't use the word, he's an attorney, so we probably don't use the term mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is someone who stands between two parties to negotiate peace. There's an obstacle in the way. There's a a conflict that needs to be resolved. And the mediator comes in and impartially represents both parties to try to bring them back together. And that's what we need. Because there's a barrier. There's an obstacle between us and our Creator. And that barrier, that obstacle, is the guilt of our sin that demands the justice of God. So we need a mediator to come in and pay the wages of our sin because the wages of sin is death. And so the mediator that we need is one who can mediate between us and God, one who can overcome our sin and our guilt and our death in order to accomplish his task. And that's precisely what Christ has done. And Paul tells us that he has done this by virtue of being a ransom for all. Ransom, another word we don't generally refer to in common everyday language, but 
the term ransom, behind this term is the idea of redemption. Redemption means that something or someone has been separated from its owner. And it needs to be brought back. And generally speaking, it needs to be brought back at a cost. The price paid to regain what was lost is referred to as the ransom price. And once the price has been paid, the object can be redeemed back to the owner's possession. And that's the role that Christ plays. The one and only Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life that we could not live. On the cross, He died the death we deserve to die. And in doing so, He paid the ransom price for the sins of his people. He took our sin and our guilt and our shame, and the Bible says he nailed it to the cross. He wasn't simply dying as an example of sacrifice. He was dying for a purpose, and that purpose was to pay the price for his people. He died in our place and then rose from the grave to show that he had accomplished the task of mediating between God and his people. Christ alone is the mediator between God and man, which means that if we want to be saved, if we want to be reunited to God, if we want to be reconciled to God, we must come to Christ for salvation. We must turn from our sin in repentance and embrace the good news of Jesus Christ because he's, he's the only way. And the reason I stress that is not only because it's biblical, but, but because in our culture, that, that idea... Is, it's rejected. Our culture is not necessarily hostile towards the idea of faith or the idea of religion. It, it will embrace, embrace those kind of religious notions that are very ambiguous, right? I mean, you can have faith as long as your faith is undefined, right? You can be not religious but spiritual. What does that mean? Well, it just, I don't know what it means, right? But we can celebrate that kind of stuff because it's just like high-sounding language, but it's undefined. There's no clarity to it. But when you have a very specific faith, well, now that's a problem. It is more popular for, for people to be spiritual than to have a well-ordered, doctrinally sound, and exclusive faith. But the faith that overcomes the problem of our sin is faith in Jesus Christ and, and in Him alone. And when you define faith like that, it becomes a problem in our culture. Christians aren't persecuted simply because we worship Jesus. We're persecuted because we only worship Jesus. If we worship and celebrate the sexual revolution alongside Jesus, then our culture wouldn't have as much of a problem with us. If we caved to the opposing pressures to add a couple of secular principles to our Christianity, then we wouldn't face so much opposition. But there is hope in no other name but the name of Christ. And when we worship Him alone, we put our hope in Him alone, when He is the only mediator, that's when things get to be problematic. That's what Paul is calling for here. One God, one mediator, one hope, Christ alone. And Paul says this at the end in verse 7. He, he, he says, look, I was appointed to do this. To preach, to be an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. This is what my life's purpose is. To teach the Gentiles faith and truth. This is what Paul's life is, is given to. To give the gospel to all the peoples of the world. And guess what? In some way we share in that mission. This is our life. This is our ministry as well. And, and 
our prayer for the gospel's advance must be a priority in the ministry of the church. So that's the main context is prayer. So let me come back. Let me give you three thoughts. Well, three questions, really. What do we do with this? I don't know how this has landed on your heart, whether it's confronted you in certain ways like it did me, but I'm, I'm assuming that it might have. So let me ask you a few questions to help us know how can, how can we respond to this. Number one, let me ask this. Have you made prayer a priority in your life? There's so many different things that distract us from prayer. Has Facebook scrolling, smartphone notifications become more pressing in your life than prayer? Have the pressing needs of the day driven the need of prayer from your heart? Again, I'm going to go back to a quote from Luther. Luther says, in instructing his barber on how to pray, he says, you need to guard yourself very carefully against those false and deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while, I'll pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. Luther says, such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention and involve you that nothing comes of prayer for that day. Anybody else say amen to that? Happens all the time. Brother, sister, have you made prayer a priority in your life? And and let me just go a step further. Not just individual prayer, but prayer with your family and then prayer with the church. It it would seem a a right application, a right response from the body for our 9 a.m. prayer meeting next Sunday to just be completely filled. Because there's very few opportunities that we have as a church to gather together and to do what God has called us to do, to pray for all, to pray for kings and who are in all who are in high positions, and to pray for our community that the gospel will pierce their hearts and to continue to do that until our own hearts become inflamed with an evangelistic desire to make sure those people next to us, those men and women in our communities, hear the truth. Have you made prayer a priority in your life? Avoiding prayer does not make us more productive, at least not when it comes to the things of God. Second, have you been limiting the scope of your prayers? Have you been limiting the scope of your prayers? It's not wrong for you to pray for your own needs. It's not wrong for you to pray what's going on in your life, but God wants us to pray for those within our church family as well as those outside of our church family. He wants us to pray for our political leaders and our local leaders. Let me just ask a question. I'm just going to leave it hanging in the air. Do you even know who your mayor is? Do you know who your congresspersons are? You need to. You need to pray for them. God wants us to be praying for our lost family members as well as our lost neighbors and coworkers and friends. Have you limited the scope of your prayers? Because it's more convenient. Or, or whatever reason. Paul wants us to push the boundaries of our prayers out. He wants our heart for those around us to grow and not shrink. I've got, I've got the Grinch in mind here. We want our hearts to grow three sizes too large, not three sizes too small when it comes to those around us. And not be indifferent about the lostness within our communities, but to be concerned about the lost within our community. To the point of prayer and proclamation, we should embrace all people in our prayers, even those that we might consider enemies, even political enemies, in the hopes that the gospel will penetrate their hearts and the peace of Christ will reign in their lives. 
So have you made prayer a priority? Have you limited the scope of your prayers? And then here's the last one. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as the one mediator between you and God? If you leave here today with all these religious notions of a renewed desire to pray for others, but you fail to see your own need of Christ, that is not a win. I want you to be stirred up to pray in accordance with Scripture, but don't miss the gospel here. Don't miss your own need of Christ. Jesus Christ is the Savior that we all need. And like Paul, I'll urge you, if you're not a believer in Christ, I'll urge you to lay down your pride, to set aside your pursuit of sin, to abandon your self-salvation mission, and put your faith in Christ alone to save you from the guilt of sin and to reconcile you to God. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us to our own thoughts and devices, but thank you for giving your word and preserving your word and using your word to stir our hearts to love and good deeds. And I do pray for us as a church as we come away from this time together in worship that our, our desire to pray would grow. Lord, where we have failed to pray God-sized prayers, I pray that you would rebuke us and that you would correct us and that you would forgive us and that you would cleanse us, but that you would set us on a new direction and path to be mindful of those around us, to look outside of ourselves and the needs that are there and to cry out to you on behalf of those needs. Lord, help us to be faithful in this task. But also, Lord, I pray for those among us who don't know you, whose hearts have not been changed by the truth of the gospel, those who have not come to see their need of Christ. This is not just a message that needs to be preached to someone else. This is a message that needs to confront us and reorient our understanding of what is true. You are true. Your word is truth. Christ is true. And our only hope is to find that hope in him. So Lord, would you accomplish that saving purpose even today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.